This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Jim, I, I want to get your amazingly instructive NDE, but first I'd like you to tell us about the prayer your wife prayed to God to bring you to a more Christian life. Well, <laughs> I guess it's a, a testament to be careful what you pray for. Uh, <laughs> but I say this with remorse because I had somehow become a person who was obsessed with, shall we say, the the ability to buy things and getting ahead in life and providing above average for my family. I thought that was a demonstration of my love. But somewhere in that arrogance, I lost my sense of self. And my nickname was Diamond Jim. Everything I touched turned to diamonds, hmm. more valuable than gold, I guess. And Lorraine, who, bless her heart, had always such a strong love of God. Frankly, I don't know how I ever convinced her to marry me, but I did. And as dedicated as she was to God, I was just as much in the other direction. And so over the years, and especially when I went through the illness, I became very bitter because I'd lived a life of, as I said, supposed success, but I felt empty. And unknown to me, Lorraine was saying a prayer to God. And the prayer was, God, you have to break him to remake him. And boy, did God ever take her up on that. Wow, he sure did. You were still fighting the terribly painful effects of Guillain-Barre when you drove your truck out to some land you planned to sell. In your book, you quote a beautiful line, when we come to the end of ourselves, we come to the beginning of God. I really love that phrase. Tell us what happened when you parked the truck. Well, I'd like to begin first by telling our listeners, uh, look, as a senior airline captain, I mean, I never touched a narcotic. I never drank uh, the odd glass of wine, maybe. I loved my career. To me, anyone that needed that needed an emotional crutch. If I needed to get high, I got in my own airplane and went up to 30,000 feet. Hmm. But I was spiritually lost, I guess. And I think like so many of my generation, sad to say, we focus on this self-sufficiency and you need no help from anything divine or otherwise and how wrong I was. So that afternoon, that late that afternoon when I got in my truck and I didn't feel well, I was on an experimental drug that actually we went through the Canadian health system and got permission to import it from England and because there was no known, well, there aren't many there are no cures that I'm aware of for people with Guillain-Barre. So I was on this experimental drug under a doctor's care. And in fact, it did help quite a bit. But I soon realized that if I took more of it, I had more relief faster. And I guess that's the slippery slope to addiction. Mm. My wife's a nurse, but because I still traveled quite a bit, I was able to get advanced prescriptions to support my pain control. And so with my arrogance, 
I thought, well, if I take a few more, well, you know what happens there. As I said, it's a slippery slope. So that day I had already taken more than the prescribed daily dose, but I felt so ill and so full of pain to go out and place markers on this significant piece of ground that I was trying to sell. And as I parked the truck, I didn't plan it this way, Lee. I was facing the setting sun. And I sat there in the truck trying to gather up the strength to make my way around this field and place the markers for the uh, for the surveyors to use. And as I'm sitting there trying to, I guess, <laughs> steel myself against the pain of walking, I moved my gloves and there, hidden in the compartment of my truck, which my wife never drove, was some of the medication that I had been using. And so I rationalized that, well, a couple of more won't hurt, mm. uh, knowing full well I was well beyond the daily dosage. Well, <laughs> so I had a bottle of pop there and I, I took some more and I sat back waiting for that wonderful warm feeling that would erase the pain in every joint of my body and allow me to function. But suddenly I became aware of, instead of that warm, soothing feeling, it was as though my feet had caught on fire. And I actually looked down at the floor of the truck, and it was a, a new Dodge Ram, mm. <laughs> to see what, what was the cause of this heat. And it spread rapidly up my legs and, uh, in, and into my body and into my chest. And suddenly my heart began to beat faster and faster. And I kept raising my head. It was as though there was water filling the cab. And I had to raise my, my head to breathe, to straighten out my chest. Mm. And you, you just know when you've done something catastrophically wrong. And suddenly I became aware that this is no longer just pain. This is catastrophic. And it was at that moment from somewhere deep inside of me that I didn't even know existed. This prayer welled up out of me. I'd never prayed since I was a child. And some people say, well, that was just fair. Whatever it was, it was sincere and it was heartfelt. And I cried out and I raised, I remember looking through the windshield of the truck as I gasped for air and I raised my right hand to the setting sun and it was shaking violently. And I cried out the first of six words that we will discuss that I believe allow me to be here with you today, Lee. The three words that I cried out in that truck as, my, as I staggered to get these words out, I cried out, God, forgive me. Because I had this sudden awareness that I had never thanked the Creator. I'd never sought to thank God for the life that I had lived. And now as it was being stripped from me, I cried out, forgive me. Forgive me for not just recognizing him in my life, but for all the goodness that I could have done and did not do. Forgive me. Some people say to me, well, you know, it's a little trite at that moment. Listen, when you're facing death, just as the old saying that there are no atheists in foxholes, there are no atheists that are dying in trucks. 
And was that when you thought you were getting out of your truck? Well, I couldn't breathe. And so suddenly I fell forward. The last thing I was conscious of was banging my head on the steering wheel violently. Mm. And I was gone. I'm not sure how long at that time that I was out, but I remember sitting back up and my head hurt terribly from banging it on the steering wheel. I looked through the windshield and I knew time had passed, Lee, because the setting sun was now right on the horizon. And as I sat back in the truck, I suddenly became aware that for the first time in four years, I had no pain, none. I finally got it right. You have to take more than they want you to take. <laughs> I slid out of the truck. I walk about 15 to 20 feet away. I mean, it's a beautiful spring evening in April. I can smell the grass. I can see the setting sun. I hear the birds in the trees. But I feel wonderful. I felt like I used to feel when I was a kid. It was as though, Lee, I had taken off a heavy, wet overcoat. That's the best way I could describe it. I felt so light and alive. Boy, the medication really worked. <laughs> and then I, I'm trying to rationalize, how can I feel this good? And I turned toward my truck. And instantly I'm filled with rage and anger because some son of a gun is sitting in my truck. Not only that, he slumped over the steering wheel. How dare someone sleep in my truck? Hmm. And so I turned to go over there and give him a good what for. Have you ever had a dream where you're trying to run, something's pursuing you, and you can't get your feet to move? Hmm. I, that's, that's the sensation I had. I felt great, but I looked down and I, why can't? I could just shuffle by in inches forward. But I did manage to get a little closer to the truck. And I look up at the truck to see if this guy is still there. And I am absolutely stunned beyond comprehension because I'm struck with the realization, Lee, that the guy slumped over the wheel of that truck is me. It's my body. I know it's me because my face is turned toward me. My eyes are staring ahead with no life in them. And there's blood running from my mouth. Hmm. I speak of the arrogance that I had. I could fix anything. I could survive anything, no matter if there was an engine out when I was flying in the bush or an issue my friends had, I could always help them. And I immediately began to, old habits die hard, and I began to formulate, how can I, if I could just get back in that truck and get back in my body, everything will be okay. I, I can do this. And I started to move toward the truck in, by inches in a panic when suddenly I began to rise. Now, as a pilot, I'm a good judge of altitude. And, and in, within seconds, I'm 100 feet above the truck. I can look down and I can see my toolbox in the back of the truck, look through the rear window, see my body slumped over the wheel, and I'm rising. I look out over the beautiful sunset of that field. And then I, I, my body suddenly canted backwards at about 45 degrees. And I look up and there I saw it, Lee. 
like a golden circle, like a gold wedding ring, about 60 feet in diameter. And then suddenly the center of it filled with a deeper gold. And then it swung inward to the right as though on hinges. And when that happened, my body oriented toward that light, that tunnel of light. And it was though I had hit the thrusters on one of the large airliners that I flew because the sense of speed and tremendous speed, I went directly into that golden tunnel. The strangest thing was, unlike advancing the the throttles on the jet, there was no sound. And although I felt as though I was moving at incredible speed, Mach 1 at least, there was no sound. There was no sense of the wind rushing by. It was just silence. But within that tunnel, it, it was a definitely a tunnel. The inside was filled with what looked like golden cloud forming this circle. And I was in the center of it. And I'll never forget this. I was trying to describe how fast I was going at a church in Baltimore one night. And there was a young guy sitting in the front pew, and he said, it sounds like warp speed to me. <laughs> <laughs> because, And, and it's, he was right, because I was trying to describe, Lee, how the stars streamed by me. Mm. They were streaming by me, just streaks. And that's a perfect analogy that young man had. It was warp speed or God speed. Mm. So you saw, you saw stars... Uh... Streaming by streaming me. It was by. as though I was. Wow. It was as though. How do I describe something that felt like forever but happened in an instant? There are no words to describe that. But I was conscious of tremendous speed and silence. But very quickly, I could see that the tunnel was narrowing. And at the end of this tunnel, there was a bright light, even brighter than the interior of that tunnel. And then I began to decelerate, and I came upright, and I find myself facing, I still don't know whether to call it a door, a portal, an entrance. It was covered in mist. But I knew I had no choice but to step through that mist because I sensed over my shoulder the tunnel was closing behind me. And so as you would stepping into a room and you have no idea what's inside of it because of the mist, I cautiously put my right foot inside and it went down about four inches and I felt something solid. So I then brought my other leg through the mist covered me. The portal closed silently and I looked down at my feet and I cannot believe what I'm seeing because I'm standing on the most incredibly beautiful green grass I have ever seen. Not only that, as I gently move my feet, light ripples through every blade of the grass. And then the mist began to clear. And I look up, and I'm, again, stunned beyond belief. Because to my right, there is this magnificent vista of rolling fields and pastures. And flowers in colors that don't exist on earth. And I, I mean, I'd never read anything about NDEs. I mean, I've heard the term. I, I, 
I, but I had never bothered to investigate it. And here I am looking at this incredible vista. There's a beautiful light in the sky, but it's not, it's not sunlight. Um, it, it's, it's just a fused light that bathes everything. But then curiously enough, as I move my vision from the right to the left, that incredible, beautiful, mesmerizing vista, the grass, as I moved my vision to the left, it went from green to dark to charred to burnt. And as I traversed my vision direct, more directly to the left, that side of what I was looking at was dark. and The skies were black. And I realize, how can this be? This is the same. This can't be a weather system this close <laughs> together. So I, I was so taken by it, scared by it. And yet I've always been a technical person. I needed to understand how this could be. Most pilots are technical. I needed to know what this is. So I took a few steps and now I could walk normally to the left and I walk over and, and there's a chasm or an abyss. And I look down and what I see, Lee, is the walls of this chasm are shiny like black coal, like anthracite. But at the very bottom of this, I can see a dim red light, like a flickering campfire you would see in the distant forest. And I'm stunned because this is so different. And do I have time to talk about what I saw? Oh, absolutely. This is so theologically significant and so unusual for an NDE. This is a very important part of your story. Well, thank you. So, again, a combination of terror and inquisitiveness and wanting to know. As I looked down, the fire became brighter and it ref refracted, not reflected, but refracted off the, the walls. So it was as though the walls themselves were filled with fire. And looking down, the fire became brighter. And then I realized I'm looking straight down, but at about a 25 degree angle to the left. And I realized that, that this light that I see is coming from an entrance at the bottom of this hole, as you would look in a cave. Mm. And as I'm watching, I saw the fire grow brighter. And then to my absolute amazement, this abomination would be the correct word, this strange creature and it was large, emerged from this side entrance. Mm. And I could hear the creaking of massive iron doors that had not been opened for a long time. And this creature was coming through them. And to describe it, imagine something about 60 feet tall with a body that was seemed to be encased in fire. It was enormous. It was like a, a large, uh, overweight creature with a body built of fire and the head on it was hunched down between its shoulders and it seemed to be looking for something around the bottom of this pit and I guess people say why didn't you run listen I was transfixed I had never in my wildest I had dreams ever thought I'd have to look at something so horrendous Hollywood could never duplicate what I saw and as I'm looking down, transfixed by this creature, suddenly it turned as though it sensed I was looking at it. 
and it turned its squat neck on its hunched back and looked up toward me. Lee, the look of absolute hatred it had in its eyes for me, for all mankind, was unmistakable. And it seemed to be focused. It was as though it had been waiting. And then to my dismay, it reached up with one claw-like hand and grabbed the side. And I was amazed at, despite its size, at its agility. It moved very quickly. Now, keep in mind, this is a body that's on fire and it's huge. And, and as it came up toward me, I, I remember hearing something. I heard screaming. And Lee, here's the scary thing. It wasn't a creature that was screaming. The screams were coming from its body, but it was as though it had consumed souls. And those souls were screaming out for help. And now it was coming for me. Mm. And as I said, it moved with such agility and speed for its size. It reared up out of the pit and I fell backwards and scrambled backwards on my elbows and my back because it stood over me. I will never forget. I will never forget what this thing looked like. But you know what I remember most? The sound of the saliva dropping from its jaws and splashing on the ground. Now, I know this sounds like a cheap horror movie, but this is what I saw. Mm-hmm. This is what I saw. Was there a smell along with the sound that you heard? Thank you for reminding me of that. I'm, I'm trying to stay within the time confines. But yes, as it was coming up out of the pit, there was a stench, an odor of death and decay, uh, a smell uh, that you would associate with a grave. Uh, And you know what it was? It was the smell of despair. The smell of despair. And all of that combined just terrified me, terrified me. I think in your book, you also said there were whispers out of the darkness, calling your name, calling you personally. Yikes. And it was about two-thirds of the way up, I began to hear my name being called. My name, Lee, this creature knew me. I mean, I may not have been a great man, but I wasn't a bad man. What did I do to deserve this? And this creature was calling to me. And, And it it was, it was, Jim, Jim, we are here for you. Come to us. And over and over, and it had this strange enchantment to it. Uh, it was trying to draw me toward it. And I, I really believe to this day that had I stared into its eyes for 10 more seconds, I would have been snatched. But as I said, I'd fallen on my back and I was scrambling to get away from it. And then I I, I just got up and turned my back to it and I could feel its breath on me. It's it's breath that was a stench. I could hear the saliva and I just hunched my shoulders together trying not to acknowledge its presence. And then remember at the beginning of this, I said there are six words the first three I cried out of my truck, God. 
forgive me. Forgive me. And now I, me who had never prayed, I lifted my hands to the beautiful fields to my right, and I cried out, God, help me, help me, help me. And, you know, I think that's the, the primary message of, of this event is that it is never too late to cry out to God, no matter what the mm -hmm. life you've lived. If you call out with a truly contrite heart, yes, I was scared, but also I was so sad that I had not lived a life devoted to God. And that prayer had no sooner left my lips than I, I look up in that beautiful sky and three points of light appeared like distant stars in that brilliant sky, stars during the daytime. And they they came from different points, one at about 270, another one from about 90 degrees, another one maybe 45 degrees, and they were all converging to a central point. And and all the while I'm concentrating on that to keep my sanity because this thing is calling my name and it's standing right behind me and I can feel the heat of its breath. And those three points of light, Lee, they merged into one brilliant light. And suddenly I realized, I realized they're angels. They're angels. God had heard my prayer. Look, I might not have gone to church, but we've all received a Christmas card at some time in our lives with an angel on it. I knew what I was looking at. And they were coming toward me at such speed. And 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 my pilot instincts took over. They made a beautiful <laughs> landing and and came toward me. And and they're they're these incredible beings of light that I thought was just a, a crazy old legend. They exist. They are, and 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 the first one that came toward me was about ten feet tall, and and the second one was about twelve to thirteen. And coming behind was a warrior angel. And how I knew that was he was dressed differently. He was dressed for battle. He had armament, and he was dressed for battle. And he was about fifteen feet tall, and clearly. There was a, com a commanding presence. But as they came toward me, they created a light. And that light went beyond me, Lee, and struck that creature. I turned in time to, to watch it screech in agony when the light hit it. And it scrambled backwards down that hole like a rat running for cover. Darkness and evil cannot exist in the light of God. And I witnessed it. I witnessed it. And I turned to see these beautiful creatures advancing to me, three of God's angels. And the first one who I later found out was actually who had been assigned to me at my conception was my guardian angel. And this beautiful, tall, slim, neither male nor female, but the beauty of both the, the gentleness and love of a female, but the the resolute ability of a warrior, fine featured, silver hair, not not silver in the sense of aged, but brilliant silver hair that at first I thought was blonde, but then I came to realize that what we mistake for a halo is actually the the, the golden light of the angel's wings refracting and reflecting 
off their silver hair. But the most incredible aspect of these creatures of God were their eyes, Lee, not blue, not green, but the most incredible shade of violet, all guardians of violet eyes. Now imagine the size of this beautiful creature and the eyes that match it. And I was mesmerized by the beauty and the sense of love. And this first angel came, and I didn't see them walk. They kind of glided toward me and came up to me. And, and I stared up into this magnificent face. And I say he, but they were neither male nor female. And, and the guardian smiled at me. And then he put his arm around my shoulder. And I felt such I felt such love and concern. And he looked into my eyes with those beautiful violet eyes. And I heard his voice. And it wasn't, it, 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 the lips didn't move, but I, it was as though he had entered into me and I had entered into him. And I heard this beautiful voice say to me, Fear not, James, for we are your constant friends. Constant friends. And then this magnificent wing unfolded from his body and went around his arm and around me and pulled me, pulled me into his body. And the, the, the feeling of love was overwhelming and peace having just escaped the creature that was after me. And now here I am being held with an angel, by an angel. And, and here's a kind of a funny footnote. Uh, when the angel hugged me, <laughs> I smelled tapioca. <laughs> <laughs> no, Lee, I'm not trying to. I'm not trying to 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 found the Church of the Holy Tapioca. I'm not, but but this speaks to the magnificence of God's love for us. Because when I was a young boy, beating my way through a snowstorm in Newfoundland, home to my grandmother's house, and. As we say, summer there is on a Wednesday, two to four. And I'd come into the house. My grandmother would have a big warm bowl of tapioca ready for me. So you see what happens? God knows our every wish. And he knew that when I was a little child, how much that meant to me. And for someone else, it may be the scent of your mother's perfume, the smell of your father's tobacco or his aftershave but it will make it will give you this feeling that you have come home and that's what i had i had finally come home ndes are so often personalized like that you know people say how can all of these be so different but each one is designed for the person experiencing it to speak to them and to their needs it, it is lee there are similarities you know the tunnel and so on but i think that god treats each of us as individuals mm. we tend to think of ourselves as part of a massive group of creatures but to god each one of us is precious yeah and he knew me 
He knew me unlike anyone had ever known me before. He created me. He created you. And you're absolutely right. I think that he personalizes each experience. So we see the similarities of this of the other dimension, but it's tailored to our lives. And imagine the shock to our systems when we see all of this, because having that, that scent of tapioca immediately calmed me. And, and I knew I was among, I, I was in the center of love. Now in your book, you say they, these angels bowed to you and you were stunned by that. Yes. And I have to just say with one more thing, if I may. Of course. While the angel was hugging me, I felt so safe and loved and he started to move away from me. And I reached over with my left, with my hand and I put it on the angel's arm and I felt such, it was like putting your finger in an electrical socket, but it felt good. (laughs) This wonderful feeling went through me and it was just a wonderful feeling of intensity. And I remember it to this day. When I put my hand on the arm of the angel and I I felt, oh gosh, I shouldn't have done that. So I went to take my hand away. And when I did, Lee, the most amazing thing happened. The light of the angel's body clung to my hand till I got it about 10 inches, six to 10 inches away. And then it let go and went back into the angel's arms. And that's why I have a chapter in the book that talks about the sticky love of God. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> which I thought was a was a, a, a great image. <laughs> yeah, I have many pastors that tell me that they've never heard that term before. Anyway, uh, yeah, so getting to your question about the angels bowing to me, they were so polite, and it wasn't a stilted politeness. It, it was more of a Victorian style of <laughs> politeness, you know. So they each bowed to me in turn as the angel opened his arm and his wing. And they bowed deeply to me. It wasn't just a, uh, an acknowledgement of my presence. And, and I found out later from my guardian that I questioned why did all of you bow to me? Because hmm. uh, I felt it should have been the reverse. I should have been bowing to them. And his answer stunned me. The, he said, James, do you not know that when we look at humanity, we see the light of our master in each of you. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Wow. So it's hard to imagine that this divine being that can cross eons of oceans of dimensions, and yet they bow to us, they honor us. And I feel it should be just the reverse of that. And then you were walking with them, I guess. Yes. And the second angel who had a tablet and was <laughs> not an iPad, but uh, some sort of scroll that he wrote on, he uh, pulled his arm back. And then I heard his voice and he said, James, 
would you walk with us? And so I turned and this beautiful path appeared through this vista of flowers and we began our walk through paradise. And it was wonderful. The, let, let me just speak for a moment to the communication. I discovered something immediately. My, my vision had become 360. Without turning my head, I could see everything in front of me, beside me, and behind me. And it may sound confusing. It wasn't. Uh, it was as though I had always seen this way. But the effect is overwhelming. And it's 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 like a three sixty degree IMAX theater, and uh, and as we walked, I asked questions. I've always been inquisitive, and as I said earlier in the broadcast, I always had this desire to learn, and I think that's what made me a good pilot was I was interested in how things worked, and so I was free to ask them numerous questions. Uh, too many to go into here, but I, I talk about some of them in the book and in the book to come. And uh, it was just astounding to hear their answers. And I became so comfortable with them. I said to the first guardian that had identified himself as my guardian, I said, may I ask your name? And he said something really different. He kind of looked away in a shy way. And I said, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to offend you. He said, no, I take no offense, but we are shy about sharing our names. And I said, why would you be shy with your name? And he said, James, as you know, when our master Jesus walked the earth, when he cast out a demon, he always asked the demon's name. Knowing someone's name gives you power, mm. but I shall tell you my name. And he did. And I, it was one of the most precious things that happened to me. Was this your guardian angel that uh, gave This was my guardian angel, uh, yes. So that's yeah. a powerful gift to give you because you can call on him now easily. And that's what it is, Lee. It's a gift. And, you know, I know that this is the age of YouTube and People make fantastic claims. The, the, the difference with mine is I've seen my own death certificate. I've talked to the doctors who said, you, you had no brain sign. You weren't dreaming this. Mm. You weren't imagining this. It would show up. You were deceased. We told your wife there was no point. We would keep you on the machines until your children arrived to say goodbye. But to us, you had already gone. I don't say that to indicate that some other person hasn't, you know, that may not have the proof that I have that we shouldn't believe them. But I, sadly, there are people that aren't telling the truth. I don't do this for anything other than trying to help people deal with the loss of a loved one or the, the loss of what's coming. What people have to realize is all of you within the sound of my voice and Lee's are dying of a terminal illness. It's called mortality. As you're walking along, to bring you back to heaven, you describe it as features like Earth's features, but I guess in incredibly enhanced mountains and streams and trees and flora. And you mention also that the flowers are translucent and describe yes. them like stained glass. Tell us a little about that. 
Well, as we walked along, I, I was asking questions and looking at this incredible countryside. I mean, I've been in 52 countries as a pilot, but this was different. And, and the flowers, uh, many of similar to what we have here, but so many different flowers that I'd never seen before. And I've spent a lot of time in Africa and in South America and, you know, in the South Pacific, but nothing to compare with this. And as we were walking along, I became aware that there were colors that I could not describe and still can't describe because we don't have them in the palette of colors that we have on earth. They are different. But I was transfixed by one particular group of flowers and I asked if we could stop. And I knelt down to look at them because I realized that these incredibly beautiful flowers were translucent. And so each, each petal was different than the petal underneath. And so they all combine to create a color that doesn't exist on Earth. And while I'm down there, Lee, I become aware of the most amazing fragrance. And, and I just kept wanting to, to immerse myself in this fragrance. And I turned and looked. And, and by this time, my guardian had knelt beside me on one knee. And he, and he, he was smiling because he could see how transfixed I was. And I said, they smell so wonderful. And he said something in return. I will never forget. He said, yes, James, that is the scent of sanctity. For these flowers are God's discarded thoughts. Ooh, nice. Think about that. Wow. Think about that. And then in your book, you mention contrails in the sky. Yes, we were having this, I guess, leisurely stroll through paradise. And they were showing me the brooks, all of which seemed to be filled with uh, the water flowed like liquid crystal, mm. similar to uh, a fast moving stream we'd see here, but but so much more. And the pebbles in the in the bottom of the brook were gold color. And, and so it gave this incredible light coming up from this. And as we walk along, you know, they point out so many beautiful things and magnificent birds and the sound of, of the rushing water. And the other amazing thing was, as I was smelling the flowers, I began to hear something coming from the flowers. And I realized it sounded like a little tinkling noise, but Lee, it had a, um, it had a melody to it. And I turned to my guardian and I said, is that music I hear? And he said, yes, James, the flowers are so happy you're in heaven. They're singing to you. And so the sound of the brook, the sound of the gentle breeze, the birds flitting in the trees and singing, and it all combined to create a melody. And if I looked carefully enough with my enhanced vision, that kind of, that sound rose in kind of a pink haze, not an obtrusive haze, but a pink haze. And it floated off toward a distant light on the horizon, which they explained to me was the throne room of God. So all the, all the sounds of heaven combined into a, a hymn of praise. And didn't they describe the contrails as prayers specifically for you? Yes. So we walk along and we come to this split rail fence, much as you'd see on any horse farm in America or oh, Canada. Yes, this is so important. <laughs> and we walk up to the fence and again, just as God knew that 
I had a love of tapioca. He knew my love of horses. And the tall angel said, James, look, and he had stretched his hand out and the sleeve fell back. And he made a motioning with his hand. And suddenly from the far end of the pasture, coming at a trot toward us were three of the most magnificent horses I had ever seen. I mean, they were the epitome of their kind. And look, I had never read the Bible. I didn't know that it said that when Jesus returns on the final day, he will be riding a white horse. And coming toward me was this magnificent white horse and a dun horse and a palomino. And they were magnificent. I'll always remember, Lee, that as their hooves travel over the ground in the trot, the light that I had detected beneath my feet, the, their hooves created the same effect of light on the grass as they trotted toward us. And they came right up to the fence and leaned over the fence and looked at me. And I couldn't help it. I reached through and to stroke the, the chest of, of, of the white horse. And my hand went right into its body. It was a being of light. And just as had happened with the guardian angel, when I withdrew my hand, the light, the sticky love of God clung to my hand. And I stood there looking into the incredible eyes of, of these magnificent creatures. Beauty without vanity. Nobility. Everything good. Yeah. Standing in front of me. And so... I'm amazed. And, and then I look up into the sky. And this is a sky with no sun in it. As a pilot, I look for some way to orient myself. So I was trying to find the sun. Am I southwest? Am I northeast? There is no sun. Everything is lit by the light of God. There are no sun. There's no sun. There's no moon, no stars. But what I do see in that beautiful, translucent, heavenly sky were these three columns of uh, six columns rather of silver going up in the sky and like contrails and uh, that you see behind a jet on earth and I turned to my guardian and I said are those contrails now in my mind I knew that I don't think there's an airline that flies to heaven and if there is I want the job <laughs> but, but I'm looking and I'm stunned because there are six contrails arcing right above me in the horse pasture. And I said to the guardian, what are those? And he said something that was, again, beyond my imagination. He said, Jim, James, those are the prayers of your family for your soul. And I found out much later when I had come back and we were comparing what I had seen and what they, my wife had called her sister's and one of their sons. And they gathered in our kitchen, arms around each other, and formed a prayer circle, six of them. And they prayed that if it be the will of Jesus, that he send Jim back. And so what I was witnessing were the prayers from my family for me. Jim, in the few minutes we have left, I wonder if you could spend a couple minutes describing the city of heaven, and then, of course, your encounter with Jesus. Yes. I turned from the horses, and they gently guided me. And then, again, one of them said, James, look. And he made a motion with his hand. And instead of the flowers, I was looking at this large, like a reflecting pool, but it wasn't water. He made another movement, and 
and uh, and it seemed to rise. And then he said, "Touch my cloak," and I did. And I I, I held on to the end. And suddenly, it was as though I was transported above, and and I'm looking down. And then it opened up completely, and I realize I'm looking down on on nothing less than the holy city, God's home. And Lee, I mean, dimensions are different there than they are here. And and it was immense in its scope, delightful in its beauty, and magnificent in its orderly look. And I'm looking down on on, on heaven. Now, there's something that needs to be explained here. People say to me, didn't you see your family that you loved? No, I did not. You see, I didn't know I wasn't staying. I didn't know I was going to be refused. And once you go through the gates of heaven, you never come back. And that's what I'm hoping for the next time. But what they did do was hold me above the city and allow me to look at it, much as you would a see-through, uh, you know, a fly-by video. And, and, uh, and it was very familiar to me because I'm used to looking at the ground from altitude. And so with my hand firmly by this time held by the guardian, I'm able to look down on the, on the holy city and, and, and at the same time be able to ask questions and get immediate answers of what I was looking at. So I was able to see not only the, the beauty of heaven from all angles, but the, the halls of knowledge, the halls of learning, the hall of records, even the hall of healing. And, and, and I questioned why in heaven where we are completely restored, would you need a hall of healing? And he explained to me that is because many of mankind die in tragic, immediate circumstances, and they need a period of grace, is what he called, in this beautiful place where it's explained to them what happened to them and why they are there. Otherwise, it would be too much to handle. And to look down on these vistas of gardens and so on. And I was able to see, Lee, these beings of light. They were clearly had a form. They had hands and they had feet. They, they moved. But they each seemed to be cloaked in light. And yet the more you looked at them, the more visual they became in sense of, of their features and so on. And I turned to the guardian and I said, am I seeing this correctly? Because I said, with, a, with a, just a few exceptions, uh, everyone I'm looking at seems to be in their early 30s, the peak of life on earth. And he said, yes, James, God so loved the sacrifice of his son that he declared that no one in heaven, with the exception of the elders, no one in heaven would be any older than Jesus was when he was crucified. And I mean, that is, I, I know it doesn't say that in the Bible. I didn't know any better. I never read the Bible. But I know I've been reminded thousands of times. It doesn't, I know, I'm just telling you what I saw. Others who've had near-death experiences say they see their grandparents as they looked in the prime of life in their 30s. Yes, yes. So that's confirmation. And the wonderful thing was, I could look at a group of people, six or seven, and you could tell that they were welcoming someone who had just come into heaven, a family member. And they were walking with their arms around each other, showing just as you take someone to your your capital and show them 
you know, the Washington, the Lincoln Monument, yes, or the the White House, or you know, and it was just, <laughs> there were sightseeing, <laughs> and, and it was so evident. I could I, because with my vision, I could focus right in on their faces, and I could see the 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 wonder and the glories of being sent back. Here's a question that I must take the time to answer. So many people say, I just don't understand that if my wife or my husband, and we loved each other so dearly, and one of us passes before the other, how can they be happy in heaven when I'm still here on earth? I don't understand. How can that be? Here's how it works. Time exists there, Lee, but it's different. So for the loved one that has gone ahead and is there, to them, it's like 15 to 20 minutes, and their loved one is going to be with them. It's like waiting for someone that's coming to dinner. Yes. We on earth are still stuck in this time zone, and we're facing 10, 15, 20, maybe 30 years without our loved one, and it is difficult. But that's where the necessity of faith and belief, yes. belief in God comes in. In your book, you mention a nursery for the aborted or miscarried babies. Yes, yes. Thank you for reminding me. Yes, there was one magnificent building, and the colors of that building were pink and blue. And that sounds rather garish, kind of Las Vegasy, with apologies to Las Vegas. But it was the gentles, the most gentle of hues. And I said, what is that beautiful building? And the guardian said, James, that is the nursery. And I said, nursery in heaven? Yes, James. This is where children who die at birth or of complications during birth, this is where they come to and they are cared for and loved by angels and by others like you who have come to be with them. And I was just so overwhelmed by the the love of God, that babies. So this is such a, a blessing. I remember speaking in Baltimore one night. This lady started to cry because she had lost her baby girl uh, just two weeks before, and she was desperate to know where she might be. And these children are raised in this nursery, and they eventually become part of, of the, the populace of heaven. They don't remain babies. They grow but they grow at the rate of three times we do on earth. Now they're not growing a physical body. I'm talking about growing a spiritual body. Yes. And so when a child is three here, there's six in heaven. When there's six here, they're nine in heaven. So they mature fairly rapidly. And many of them go on to work in the nursery themselves to volunteer in the nursery. So yeah, a nursery. And that is such a comfort to people that have lost a child, even if it's not in birth or in an accident. It is the, it is the refuge for innocence. And speaking of innocence, you said as well that there are dogs and cats and other animals yes. all over the place. <laughs> and on this massive lawn in front of the nursery were thousands of these little beings of light but clearly children playing with dogs and cats and, and all sorts of creatures. And it was wonderful to behold. I, I, they had a hard time making me move on. <laughs> <laughs> well, we do have to move on here, but uh, tell us about your encounter with Jesus. Of course, because it's the most important part of this journey. I was back down in paradise and was looking again at 
these magnificent flowers. And I realized that I had not seen my guardian. And I turned to look. And to my right, about 60 feet away, the ground rose in a slight rise. But, you know, a small mound and or hill. And I look and my guardian is there. And there's another figure that I had not seen before. And my guardian is bowed low, uh, even lower than when he bowed, when they bowed to me. And facing them is this magnificent figure uh, with a golden light that was more majestic, more beautiful than even the light of the angels. And it was as though um, uh, a golden light behaved like water. It flowed out of the center and flowed down all sides of this this magnificent creature. I could not see the face. You know how you drive down the road on a, on a hot summer day and there's a wavy line of heat coming off the asphalt? The face was covered with, with that and I couldn't see, but I was transfixed by the sheer magnificence of this creature. And I realized as I looked that my guardian had taken this from his sleeve, this small, slim book, no bigger than a, a cheap roadside diner menu. And he had opened it for this figure to see. The figure was bent over looking at it. And, and, and as I'm watching, this golden river of light flowed down from that figure, down that slope, and pooled around my feet. And suddenly, Lee, I was filled with this profound knowledge that what I was looking at was none other than Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I mean, someone that I thought was some dusty old legend. And the very moment of revelation of who this was, the shimmer on the face on his face vanished. And although he was reading the book, he turned gently toward me and smiled smiled at me and this figure this magnificent face this of gentleness and strength and love and compassion smiled at me and i i had to get closer and because and then he turned back and started to read again and i was also filled with the knowledge that they were the angel was showing jesus the book of my life and I immediately was ashamed, ashamedly, that I had been given so much and had done so little to help mankind with all the resources I had. I could have done so much. And I was ashamed. And I tried to crawl. I fell to my knees and I tried to crawl through that golden light to get closer. And I was crying. I was crying. And my desperate plea for forgiveness for my stupidity, for my ignorance, for my arrogance. And then the images floated off that, the book of my life. And suddenly my mind was filled with all these scenes of my life, my childhood, my mother, my all the things that had happened to me 
And, and how do you describe a lifetime happening in the flash? Or as they say, my life flashed before my eyes. And I'm being shown this. But Lee, not only was I shown all the love that I was given, I was shown all the people that I had hurt. Now, no one tells you this, but I do. I saw the people whom I had hurt, whether unintentional or unintentional. And worse than that, I felt their pain. And I was filled with remorse and I began to cry even harder. How could I have hurt so many people when I thought I was a good person? And, and I, I was just overwhelmed as all these images came toward me and entered my mind. And, and, but I continued to crawl forward. I, then I stopped and the guardian gently closed the book and put it back in the sleeve. Jesus straightened up and then he turned directly toward me and I saw him in all his radiance. My, the son of God. Son of God. And through my tears and my remorse, I felt, I felt the most incredible love for me and for mankind. And I did nothing to deserve it. That's the saddest part. I did nothing to deserve this love. And, and I... I wanted to get closer to just be as close as I could. And suddenly two angels lifted me up and held me back. And I'm not big, but I'm persistent. And, and I actually wrenched my shoulder free and started to crawl toward, drop to my knees and crawl toward him again. And this time Jesus, his smile is different. And he raised his right hand. And when he did leave, the sleeve of his cloak fell back. And there in the wrist of his, of his arm were the remains of the crucifixion. This dark reddish stain on his wrist. And that made me feel even worse. But I still continued. But he held his hand up as I tried to move forward on my knees. And, and, and this time it was an unmistakable command of, of stop. The, his hand was raised and there was no mistaking. And it was at this point that, that this all culminates. And then I heard his voice, the voice of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He knew me, Lee. He knew me. And what he said to me wasn't a lot, but it meant everything to me. And then I heard just, but the difference was with the angels, their, their, their lips, they, there was no motion of speaking. But with Jesus, it was as if you and I were having a conversation. And he looked at me with those incredible eyes of gray and green and blue. And with his hand still in the upright position, this is what he said. James, my son, this is not yet your time. Go back and tell your brothers and sisters of the wonders we have shown you.
and then his hand descended and closed, his right hand and closed over the left. And then the full impact of what he had said struck me, that I was not being allowed to stay, that I had to go back. And I began to plead, I began to beg, I began to cry, please, please don't send me back, please. This is what I have searched for all my life. Please don't let me, don't let me, don't make me go, please. And then I said, which I can hardly believe, I said, please, Jesus, let me stay. I won't be any trouble. <laughs> can you imagine saying that to the Son of God? It seemed, it seemed to make him smile <laughs> even more. And suddenly two angels appeared and and they picked me up bodily and turned me around and and started to walk rather briskly down the path with me. And I kept crying, please let me stay. And I, I wrenched my head around to plead one more time and look back. And when I did, Jesus was gone. But standing in the exact place where Jesus had stood was the most magnificent warrior angel, massive in size. And all of a sudden, he began to unfurl his wings. Imagine a creature 15 to 20 feet tall with a wingspan of 24 feet, 12 on each side. And then the wings grew in size and he glowed like the sun. And clearly what he was telling me was the way forward for me was not open at this time. Mm. And suddenly I'm in a dark tunnel. It's not a tunnel of light. It's not, it, it's wet and it's cold. And I shouldn't say this, so I'll apologize. Lee, I felt as though I was flushed. There was a sound of running water. <laughs> and I know that's an ignominious end to a wonderful experience, but I guess it was at that point that I came out at the other end, screaming at the top of my lungs around. I was intubated, wires and hoses coming out of me everywhere because I'd had complete renal failure. And my wife tells me that the nurse came running in and she was in the quiet room with her sisters planning funeral arrangements and waiting for our children to arrive. And she, they said, Mrs. Woodford, come quick, come quick. And she ran in from the quiet room to the, to the gurney I was on. And she said, your eyes were extended. Your eyes were like saucers. And you're trying to talk to me and, and you can't speak because you can only gurgle because of the, the tube. And, and eventually they, they got the tube out and she climbed up beside me on the gurney and, and I looked into her pretty face and she said, you're alive, you're alive. And of all the things, Lee, I could have said to my beautiful wife, I said to her, Lorraine, Lorraine. I saw Jesus, and Jesus has horses. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. Well, I don't know how to say thank you for this. This is such an amazing story. And I have to tell our audience that your book, which is a lovely book, and I would encourage them all to get it, 
of about 200 pages was edited down from about 600 pages in your original writing and that you're working on a second volume. And I hope uh, to have you back when that's completed so that we can talk about this again. Well, thank you, Lee. And the, and the real blessing for me is, is it enables us to, to help ministries uh, with the proceeds from this book where and when we can and to help the poor, help orphanages. Yes. Because I, I never wanted to be seen as one of these people that was relating this because I wanted to make money from a book. That was never the intention, and they had to talk long and hard to convince me to do this. But it's been such a blessing, especially to those who are in hospice, uh, both for the families who are watching a loved one pass and for, listen, since the beginning of time, man has feared the darkness and what lies beyond. Mm -hmm. And I, for some reason known only to God, was privileged to see it. Well, you've been very blessed. And the pain that was inflicted to bring you back to uh, sanity, I guess you'd have to thank your wife for her prayer. There's a side miracle to all this, Lee. I died in pain. I have the markers of Guillain-Barre in my blood work, and I have no symptoms. None. Another miracle. Truly. Thank you so much, Jim, for sharing your incredible experiences during your 11-hour near-death experience. 